Hey there, thank you once again for tuning in to this week's episode of the Think Curiously podcast. The podcast that provides a platform for the sharing of real life stories, passions, hobbies and ideas with the aim of helping to inspire others to share their stories. And whilst I'm on the topic of inspiration, I want to once again nudge you in the direction of Emer's Wish Facebook and Twitter account as they aim to increase stem cell donation awareness. Sean Emer's father was a guest on a previous episode of this podcast and you can hear his story on the links below in the show notes. Please, if you do anything after listening or even before listening to this episode, head over to their Facebook and Twitter account and follow and share their page. Take action now and help us keep Emer's legacy alive. Now this week I'm delighted to be joined by Paul McVeigh, an ex-professional footballer who enjoyed a 14-year career making over 270 appearances for Tottenham Hotspurs, Norwich, Burnley and Luton Town. Paul also gained 20 international caps for Northern Ireland. And as you'll hear, Paul was invested in self-development throughout his playing career looking beyond retirement. And it was his interest and knowledge of psychology and its application in sport that we chat about this week. But just before we dive into this week's episode, I want to say a huge thank you to our sponsor Gareth Fox and his Backbone Performance Support Programme. Gareth came on board with the podcast as he felt that it adds value. And likewise, his Backbone Performance Support Programme does the same across 12 fundamental areas of your life. You can find him on Facebook and Instagram as well as at his website www.garth-fox.com forward slash backbone. As always, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the Think Curiously podcast. Hello everyone and welcome along to this week's episode of the Think Curiously podcast. I'm delighted this week to be joined by Paul McVeigh and if anyone is as interested in football as I am, I'm sure you've probably come across the name before, particularly through the Northern Ireland archives right at the very start of the early 2000s. Um, but my interest outside football lies in psychology, and I know that is an interest of Paul's as well. That's why I'm excited to have him on and have a little chat today. So, Paul, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Gary, for having me. I appreciate it. And I believe you've just started your own podcast as well. I've actually just finished it about 30, 40 minutes ago. Uh, I had on uh, Chris Akabusi. Hopefully a lot of people will know that name from his his days as an Olympian uh, and potentially, you know, seeing him on TV on record breakers or big breakfast or whatever else he was doing on TV. And, and of course, because of my work now in the corporate world doing the keynote speaking and Chris has been a, been a real inspiration to me of just being able to take all of those lessons and insights from the sporting world and sharing them with the corporate world. So something that he's done so well for over 30 years and, and I'm, I'm trying to do that too. Yeah, we, we spoke briefly off air about his exper- his career and what he has achieved. And I was saying to you, I'm probably slightly too young to really understand it and appreciate it. So I went away and researched it and I was totally blown away by the level of performance that he achieved. And I guess this conversation today, I want it to circulate around that kind of um, psychology of performance and what it actually means. So if I flip it back on to you, because you've had the career that I dreamed of, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have dreamed of, you become a professional footballer. Um, as I said, you know, over 200 odd appearances for Norwich, played for Spurs, for Northern Ireland, which I'm sure must have been a phenomenal experience as well. So take us back just to sort of the, the early the early Paul McVeigh going across to the water. What did you find the difference in, in, in the culture, the environment being? And was it an adaptation process that you found uh, easy or was there, was there some challenges there? Pure challenges. Just, <laughs> I think 
it can only be described as solely challenges. That's it. There was I don't think there was an easy part to that. I don't know what people may remember of I suppose academy football or the almost like the, the process of going through a football system in the 90s when I was going through it. And I remember just going across the train with the youth team. So the youth team are between 16 to 18 year old players who are training every day. And whenever I was 11, I trained with the youth team when I was 12, all the way through every summer, every holiday, I went across the Spurs. So you didn't really have an opportunity to play with people of your age. But that meant whenever growing up in Belfast, I wasn't doing any training with any other players from Spurs all the way through until I was 16. Until eventually I turned up on the first day at White Hart Lane and suddenly training with these players who'd been in their academy. So they had trained, you know, every every week with each other and playing against the best players. So I probably had something in me that they looked at and thought we can work with that. But I was so far off anywhere near the level of all the players who were over there, who were training with the best coaches, playing against the best players, you know, doing that a couple of times a week, where I was essentially playing five side once a week with mates and then playing on a Saturday and that was it. So it was really a, a catch-up process and just trying to get up to speed. But the problem that I had was my physicality, you know, being a little short arse, only being four feet off. And I was trying to play against these big six-footers every week and just getting beaten off the ball. And, and they were outrunning me, outstrengthening me, and also just better technically than me because I'd never had really any professional coaching. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a song the Norwich fans still sing about you about your height or something, I think. <laughs> Uh, came across with, with lack of height as opposed to about <laughs> my height yeah it's definitely not complimentary in any way um but I'm, I'm sure they'll forgive you because uh, i remember my 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 grandfather was the person who got me into football and he's a massive manchester united fan i know i'm skipping forward slightly here but um i remember watching the game i think it might have been a saturday kickoff i was in his house and you were coming down the right-hand side. It was at Old Trafford, and you scored against Manchester United. There's a picture of you and, and John O'Shea kind of battling it out. Yeah, I don't really like talking about it, to be honest. It's, uh, <laughs> it's something I've probably told about four million times whenever yeah. I'm on stage in the, in the corporate world. It's, uh, it, but it is funny because, you know, I, was, I didn't realise whenever I made my debut for Spurs, so I know we're kind of probably flip-flopping across the timeline here, yeah. but... When I made my debut for Spurs in 1997, well, first of all, made my first team debut away at Aston Villa, and then I made my home debut um, sandwiched after playing up at Anfield in the Premier League. So I had three Premier League appearances, and then I scored my first goal on my home debut, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, one goal every three games, which actually for Spurs, that's a better goal-scoring record than Jermaine Defoe, so it's <laughs> Well, they'll throw that in there. I think he's a 3.01, whereas I'm a kind of <laughs> one and three. Anyway, the whole point is that I thought that was just the way it would go. Every few games, you'd score a goal, but didn't realize that it would take me another, you know, nearly 10 years before I managed to get my second and final Premier League goal. And fortunately for me, it was, it was a way at Old Trafford against um, a Manchester United team that, that included a very, very young and quite green and raw Cristiano Ronaldo. So probably the photograph that is probably most cherished possession is playing against Ronaldo and, and that photograph of me with my horrific blonde highlights <laughs> that, 
that can only be described as as or what people must have thought was what the hell were you doing back in the day but they were fashionable i don't know guys if you had these or not but they were fashionable anyway they um that photograph against ronaldo just was amazing for me because considering he's gone on to be the best player in the world for the last 20 years nearly and i'm still living off that photograph 20 years later yeah i'm not too sure what the influence was but i did have peroxide hair when i was younger so i, <laughs> I can give you that one um but if we if we just sort of flip-flop back then in in terms of of that um, process you went through through the younger ages of the academy uh, when you got to that senior level and uh, when you're in the change rooms you're about to make your first you know team appearance what was the atmosphere like if you can explain that because i know that a lot of what we imagine as us as fans imagine what it must be like full of roses and all of the, you know, all the splendor that comes with it, but I'm sure it's a little bit different. So what's interesting is my debut. I clearly, I was really, really, you know, riled up and anxious and heightened and, you know, kind of just everything was at such a high level in terms of what I was experiencing in my body. But I was playing up front and my strike partner that day was Teddy Sheringham, who, you know, had already starred for England in the Euro 96 up front with him and Shearer. He'd already been a Golden Boot winner. He was Spurs' best player. He, You know, he went on to play and win the treble with Manchester United and that fantastic team in 99. So for him, it was just like literally another day at the office. So... Even though I was really excited and I had, you know, some some family and friends in at Villa Park that day, I was actually so nervous and so excited about playing and making my debut that when I went out to warm up and you know when people try to jog across the pitch just to limber up and kind of loosen up a bit, I literally sprinted just <laughs> fifty times just because I was so much nervous and I just couldn't stop running and sprinting. Of course, everyone's looking at me thinking, what is he doing that weekend? <laughs> He'll learn soon. He'll learn. But for Teddy Sharon, it was like his 450th Premier League appearance. He was like, mm, you know. And, yeah. and that and energy just feeds off to everybody else because then you have Darren Anderton, who'd had 300 odd. Saul Campbell, who's probably on his 250th appearance. You know, so you had all these players who were just, yeah, it's just this game against Aston Villa in front of 45,000 people. It's just normal. And that is the... That's the word, really, that best describes it. Yeah. For me, it wasn't normal because it was my debut. And I don't think you can actually recreate that experience. It just let you have to get thrown on the deep end and then it's just do you sink or swim. But for everyone else, it's normal. So that energy was really calm, really relaxed, so much so that we stayed in the Belfry actually the day before. So any, any golf fans will know it as a very famous um, golfing venue. So we stayed at the hotel in the Belfry. And all the boys brought the clubs on the Friday and played night homes before the match. <laughs> That's just what happened. That's what, what it is. Yeah. Uh, so at what point then did psychology become an interest of yours? Was it at the start of your career or was it something that kind of developed as you get older? I had already started my, I suppose, my journey in it and my understanding of it. <laughs> psychology always played a part in my life. I just wasn't aware that it was playing a part in my life. So whenever I came across as a 16-year-old over the Spurs, I didn't realize that I had an inferiority complex. And probably through no fault of my own, it was probably just, you know, a lot of people who come across from another country to 
someone like in England or wherever it happens to be, once you leave your country and someone's you're stepping out of your comfort zone, you already feel like, you know, am I gonna am I gonna be able to do this and all these kind of unknowns? Whereas because I wasn't aware of that, I didn't realize how debilitating I was and how it much it held me back. But then I read my first book when I was 17 on this subject of kind of personal development and mindset and, and psychology. And, and I remember reading and just, it was like the blinkers came off and I'm just feeling like, okay, so this is a whole world that I don't know about. I would love to understand it because I can see the benefit for me. So as I started to read about it and started to understand more, and then I got the 19, made my debut. And then this whole feeling, this sort of real passion and, and desire for, for knowledge and this curiosity about learning around psychology really sort of took hold of me. Yeah, it was more about the self-development, as you said, probably the start to try and figure that out. Interestingly, um, I on my A license about two years ago in Belfast, and I'm not naming, but there was an ex-professional on there and he was an absolute gentleman. And I approached him and I asked him about his understanding of psychology. And we just came from... Um, a lecture from uh, I forget Mark Williams, I think his name is, and I was asking. I was interested to know what it, what the professionals' approach to psychology was, and he said to me, "The team that we played in were that good. We didn't need it, you know." And it was like that was just to me, blew my mind away. Mm. I was like, "Wow, we just sat through that, and that's his approach on it." And I, granted, he did then further explain to me as he got towards the end of his career, he now he understood the importance it played. But when he was at his prime, it was just because they were so focused on on winning that every single person knew their their role really. Um that they went they went and performed. I, I would I would almost argue that that is his lack of awareness of it. Mm-hmm. It's not that he wasn't using psychology, is that he didn't understand why his psychology allowed him to be successful. Yeah. So this is this is a really interesting thing. So just to go back, and this is absolutely no kind of promotion or, or advert for my podcast, but the reason why I'm speaking to all the kind of the high performing, high profile, highly successful individuals that I'm speaking to is because last year in 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 about March or April time when I wanted to raise a bit of money for the NHS and started reaching out to a few of my kind of um, people in the network and just saying, listen, can I interview you just to hear, you know, how you've done the incredible things you've done in your career. And having spoken to about 25 really successful people, my observance or some of my takeaways from it were that a lot of successful people don't know why they're successful. They're just successful. They just do it. They just have built up the skill set and are just able to perform and, and almost repeat continuously. And because they can do that, that's great. So they've almost got the technical know-how or the, the ability to do that. But like you just did, you went up and asked them, so why? How are you doing it? What, what part does this play into? What, how does this contribute? Essentially, you're talking about cause and effect. What, is that, what does that play in that role and for that outcome? And then people start going, oh, oh, really? oh I'm not really sure about that. So it's more of just kind of we're doing it. We're successful. But of course we're successful is that's like the you know <laughs> the castle on the hill that's like the thing that everybody's aspiring for and very few people or very few teams ever achieve. i had an interesting conversation recently with um a guy called casey Moultrie. he's just actually released his own podcast and he was an ex-collegiate basketballer and by his own admission and by the research i've done apparently he was one of the 
the best in terms of technical ability with his hand. It was, believe it or not, his height that was an issue as well. Um, and he didn't quite, quite, quite get to where the levels he reached. But he had this obsessiveness about be, about being relentless behind every action he'd taken. And, and he had mentioned that he didn't understand the reasons why he'd done it. It was just something that seemed to be ingrained in him that he always wanted to be the very best that he could be. And he's actually now created a podcast with his wife, who was an ex-professional female soccer player, um, about this relentlessness of success. Yeah. And it's his, his journey really to try and decipher his career and the reasons why. And it's a really, it's just picking up on what you said there in terms of not knowing why, it's a really interesting conversation. It's tough as well to work out. So, so one of the things that, seeing as I left school at 16 and, and, you know, don't feel like I'm an academic in any way because, you know, I sort of got my GCSEs and, and then that was it for me. I you know, only went back and did my degree later on when I was about 20 or 29 in sports science. And I went and did my master's in psychology about four or five years ago. And, and it was so tough, but one of the things that I kind of took from it was trying to understand, you know, critical thinking and critical analysis of just why the things happen. So that podcast, you know, you could spend the next, you know, million years trying to understand why things happen. You still probably might not ever fully, yeah, really understand it or really get grips with this whole, whether it's success, whether it's just an outcome, any outcome, because there's so many factors and so many variables. And I know science and, and the academic community always try and, you know, almost isolate certain incidents. Why, if we put this many people in this room and this thing and, and try and come up and replicate that and how they can never do it, which is why even like for 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 science and, and the amount of facts and oh this definitely happens and it's, it's they can never say that. It's always why we have a you know we support this or or we think that this is a good indication that this may happen. It's never a black or white. I remember uh, being at university and our lecturer on psychology was, he told us a quote that it stuck with me for quite some time. He's like, psychology happens in every interaction. That's it. You know, so you are speaking now, you're reading body language, you're listening to cadence of the voice, everything like that picks up on verbal and nonverbal cues, which is essentially psychology. And I guess that's my fascination. That's the reason why I'm so fascinated about it. I used to work in a bank and I used to find it fascinating when people were standing and I would try and work out the mood they were in before they got to me just by their body language to see if I could do it. And I didn't get it right all the time, but it just, it was an interest that thought, well, if I can do that there, how can, how effective can that be in the football pitch when I'm, when I'm dealing with uh, 18 year olds who are potentially, you know, looking to push onto senior level. Yeah. And that, and that had the same again. So you got a great little line in there from your lecture. We had one from our sports psychologist and he came out with a phrase of, you cannot not communicate. Mm -hmm. And I, first of all, when he said it, I was a bit like, what I cannot not communicate because if I sit here and don't say anything, then you know I, I felt like I wasn't communicating. But of course, sitting there in whatever way you're going to be sitting there with your body and whatever shape it happens to be in, whatever look or expression on your face, and whether you say anything and the words you say, again, are are interesting that the studies show that are probably only about seven percent of the communication that comes across. Whereas opposed to the intonation, you say the body language as well. So it's all, yeah, it is fascinating, but also very, very kind of, uh, yeah, generally misread by a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> all the time. I get, I get that so much often. You know, you're interested in psychology. It's all about mind reading, and you know, it's not, it's, it's not that at all. So don't think that. Don't think that. Um, 
And again, I keep going back onto my experience of working in football, but you can have the, the and as you probably know yourself, you can have the, the best technical and the, the best understanding of the tactics of it. But when you get into that environment and you don't have it between the ears, as they say, and you don't have the ability to um, bring in that information, control your emotions and your thoughts and feelings, and then go perform at the highest level, I guess that's the reason why what interests me about um, the psychology of performance is really understanding what are the components that are involved in that. Just going back, actually, just something you just mentioned there a second ago in terms of seeing players who are technically good, but you said they, they don't have it between the ears, and, and you're obviously talking about their psychology or mindset, whatever you want to call it, the mental performance aspect of their game. But that probably goes against everything that we start to know in terms of, you know, Carol Dweck's work about the growth mindset and fixed mindset and, and the fact that even if they have some sort of technical ability that has all developed, like they weren't straight out of the womb, straight with you know the ability to whip a ball into the top corner from 30 yards or, you know, so all of this stuff. So suppose it's the, the do you think that it can be developed or do you think you have to have it or not? And I'm always of the former. I think it can be developed. I think talked about earlier about the, the top class footballer who didn't know why he was successful psychologically. Well, the more he talks about that, the more he reads about it, the more he researches, the more he's in sessions, the more he starts all of the stuff he can do on that. We're going to learn. We're going to start building up our understanding of it. So I think the reason why the, it's labeled so kind of black and white, yeah, they have it or they haven't, is because most people don't understand it. They don't understand what it is to start off with. But for me, it's just a, it's a curiousness and a, and a fascination with what are the processes that are going on in my head? So whether it's in my personal life or in my work life, and how can I understand them better to try and achieve some of the things that I potentially may have decided I want to achieve? Yeah, that, you make a good point in terms of the ability to slide between the two of them. I think we can get very blinded, as you said, by being pigeonholed into saying that this person is, for example, um, disruptive. We hear that quite a bit with young players, or he's disruptive, or he can't be reined in, or whatever excuse other coaches may play. And there's other players who are coachable. That mm -hmm. phrase, coachable, um, and I hear it quite a bit, and I, and I challenge it because I say, well, what is coachable? Coachable, more than likely, they're saying that because he's well-behaved. Is that really coachable? That's a different topic for a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Carl Dweck stuff is another interest of mine. And um, I had a friend of mine up in Belfast who runs a, an academy and he asked me to write a little bit about my about Carl Dweck's mindset, fixed and growth. And I've done a little bits of, of, um, of coach education workshops through the IFA and things from the past. And I had delivered some of the stuff and I'd seen raised eyebrows when I started speaking to coaches on, on level ones about this idea, idea of you know, not every single kid is tarred with the same brush and not every single kid is either A, disruptive or B, coachable. They are all the same. We just have to be able to change back and forth. And I, I talked about some of the techniques that Carl Dweck had spoken about and the power of yet, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think was populated by Matthew Syed originally. Um, but yeah, so when I started speaking about that, they, they started to understand, okay, this isn't just really about me throwing a few cones down here in the pitch. We can actually now do something that will help guide that player away from being disruptive to being coachable in inverted commas, mm -hmm. which I yeah. think is a fascinating, a fascinating transition. But what I was getting to was that if, if we as football people, if you want to call us that in inverted commas, 
if we're in the game and we we have a situation where we can positively influence either another coach, another player, or another parent, if we allow our perceptions to be fixed, to to steal Carl Dweck's phrase, on that they this person can't be helped, this person can't be changed, then are we really doing them the service that we are here to do? And I guess that's kind of where I wanted to pick up in your work outside the game as a sports psychologist, because surely having the experience that you had as a professional, that has helped you in that role because you can understand it from their perspective. Yeah, definitely. The, the, the fact that we're all progressing along different parts of our lives at different speeds in our own time, that's, that's probably the most important part of it because, you know, if I go back to whatever friend of mine gave me this big 500-page book on personal development written by Tony Robbins, who not probably many people had heard of in 1995 whenever I read the book. And yet, you know, the fact that he's worked with millions of people around the world, you know, he's a billionaire, he's worked with probably the last four or five presidents, you know, he's just such a huge figure now. But when I read that book, for some reason, I had an open-mindedness about me to want to read that. Whereas another young footballer, young youth team footballer could have been given the same book, same time in the same city and the same team, taken it and thrown it in the bin and had no benefit from reading it. So for some reason, my time was then reading it and that started me and I went off on a completely different trajectory. Whereas someone else might not, and again, don't go into the reasons, probably too complex why they might not have wanted to read it. But maybe four years later, they did come across it or a similar book or a similar person and suddenly went off on a different path, or it could have been when they'd finished their career and they look back and go, like your friend, who was already really successful, and look back and started going, ah, that's why I was successful. Because my belief system allowed me to have a constructive, healthy self-belief so that I did walk into a dressing room and feel like I did belong there, as opposed to this young Paul McVeigh, 16-year-old, coming over from Ireland, across the England and going, what the heck am I doing here? I'm so far out of my depth but not realizing both of us at the same time, what we, what kind of belief systems we had that were running our lives. And because we both didn't realize it at 17, I did realize it and I needed, knew I needed to improve it. Whereas your friend got to the very top of elite sport without ever fully understanding it. He just had a natural attribute or intuition or whatever it was that allowed him to be successful which is brilliant. I just have to work really hard on that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a conversation that could last for an absolute, <laughs> as you said earlier on, a, a lifetime really. Um, but uh, in, terms of, in terms of the work of a sports psychologist in a professional environment, and you, you, you slightly touched on it there where you kind of said you had the open-mindedness to reach out to that book and read it, whereas somebody might have put it away. If you're in the environment where you are a sports psychologist and you're working with a group of players, do you find that some will engage with it? And then some might just palm it off and and not really not really hold it in high importance. And is that something that you did come across? Yeah, yeah, of course. Absolutely every time. It's it's the same dynamic pretty much every single time you walk in front of a team or a group of players. And to be honest, it doesn't even have to be a group of players. Every time I walk into a corporate environment, let's just put it in the football context. If I walk in and stand in front of a group or a team let's say there's 25 players straight away and I mean immediately walking through the door I haven't opened my mouth I haven't said a word 
I know there's going to be five of those players that are already on board. Having said anything, they don't know who I am. They're just on board. They're just amenable. They just want to be, they just want to do whatever you ask them, ask of them. And of course, the other end of the spectrum, you've got these other five players who just have no interest in you. They already hate you. The way you've walked into the rooms already annoyed them. <laughs> you could give them the winning lottery numbers and they're like, don't worry, I don't want just a, no, no intention at all of listening to you. And that's the other 5% or other five down that end. But that leaves about 15 of them in the middle. So roughly about kind of 60% or so who are just like, okay, well, let's see how this goes. We'll give you a couple of minutes. And if you're good, we'll kind of, we'll go with you. If you're, you know, in the first five minutes of your reputation or your credibility shot, then yeah, we're with the other five down the bottom end. We're not going to go and say those five, jump them down on the spot because they think that's going to work. So that's really how it goes pretty much every time. So part of my skill set is very quickly to get people on board, either get the credibility or to throw something out or to get some way to hook and engage people in so that you have permission or they give you permission to start taking them on this journey because they don't know what they don't know, but I know what they don't know. And it's up to me to try and share that in a way that they want to know more and they want to learn from me as opposed to going, it probably is brilliant. It'll probably really help me, but I've got no interest in it. Yeah. So I guess it's about building that connection and relationship and, and letting them see what worth there can potentially be for themselves if they do engage with it. And that's that's the difficulty that I find when I speak to 17, 18 year olds over here in Northern Ireland about, about the mindset and about where their head is and, and how they perceive, particularly how they perceive things, because a lot of their own perceptions are based upon opinions of their fathers or uncles standing in the sideline when they tell me they didn't have a good game. But when I'm going back through the analysis, I'm picking out where I thought they had a good game. And there's that conflict and you can see it in their face. Do I believe Gary or do I believe my dad or my uncle? You know, uh, But it's trying to get them to be open-minded about that and say, well, you know what? It's a game of opinions. You're in my possession, or not my possession, but you're in my sessions three days a week. Plus we're doing this analysis. This stuff is powerful. Can you engage with it? Um, the interesting thing is when we first, first started doing that with the 18s, we didn't get a lot of buy-in because this was brand new to them. They had never done it before. And now, well, when the season actually is up and running like it was last year, I was getting texts when I was giving this stuff into the, the, the players' group, team-specific stuff. I was getting texts from individual players saying, yes, that's great, but give me the individual stuff. Mm, yeah. And it was it was great to see that. It's good to see, absolutely. That shows that you know desire to improve and to get better. And, and again, that just gives you a little insight into their mindset of, of where they're at and where they want to go with it. And yeah, that's... I suppose that kind of framework that players judge themselves against on the whole is really unhelpful. I have found that, you know, it's so black and white and so simplistic. Let me try and give you an example. After a match, whenever that player goes home, they're generally asked about three questions. And it's so high level, it's a bit like, this is not helping at all. It's like, so either did you win or what was the score? So they might have won 2-0, two, 2-1. Two two okay, so that's the first question, just to get the score right there. Did you score? So it's either like, yes or no, did you score or not? And if you didn't score, okay. And then finally, the last question generally, how did you play? 
Now, yes, you do want to know those, but that's generally where the whole analysis stops. What was the score? Did you score? And how did you play? And then, of course, the how did you play question normally has kind of three answers. <laughs> and because we're so, what's the word? I'm trying to be kind here. Basic in our analysis. The three answers, and one will have more kind of um, frequency than the others, is if you played really, really, really well, you'd probably might say, oh, yeah, did okay. <laughs> That's like you're bringing your really good performance down to just an okay. If you had like a kind of middle-of-the-road game, it was a bit of, yeah, not bad. And if you had a real stinker, it was like, oh, terrible, awful, had a real nightmare, whatever. So, but it's just the fact that you're putting your kind of your whole performance over 90 minutes or in all these different things that you might have done. You possibly could have done 50, 100 things, I don't know, on a football pitch. And you just bring it down to such a simplistic level. And then, of course, you say that to loads of people and keep repeating that. So all you're doing is going, how'd you play? Then, okay, then, okay, then, okay. Over weeks and weeks and seasons until eventually you wonder why players don't know how to analyze their performance. Yeah, because then it comes back to that what we we spoke about originally, uh, back to that ability to be open minded and understand the benefits that such a I know we're talking about analysis, but the benefits that could potentially have, as well as as some of the psychological stuff. Just be before I, I move on, I just want to finish off that that last part on on that psychology of performance and being that we have quite a lot of understanding in terms of the research that's out there. There's so much research out there on your fingertips on Google that you can type in Carl Dweck, fixed mindset, growth mindset, and it gives you a little PDF or a picture up of what they all look like. I often fear at times when coaches bring that to the sessions that they use that as their only checklist and guide to say he isn't fixed mindset or he isn't growth mindset because it's not on the checklist, right? And it defeats the purpose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's exactly it. But listen, I give them credit for doing it. Like, you know, that's thinking outside the box. But I wish that we could um, try and, and, and have that conversation out in the fore. And I guess that's the reason why my podcast exists, because I want to get those types of conversations out there, conversations that not a lot of people are having, but also have guests on like yourself who have experience in those elements that can say, you know what, here is the benefit of it if you do actually put put it into practice. Benefits are so huge and so immeasurable and and whenever i explain to people that a long 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 time ago i made a decision that the only thing i ever need to work on in my life is my psychology or my mindset or my mental performance or whatever it is you want to call it i decided if i just work on this and just keeping this in a really healthy constructive place for me Every single area of my life falls into place and generally goes pretty well. So it's interesting when you're talking about, you know, how you kind of how can you go from kind of playing, you know, in the Premier League and international football to suddenly being a sports psychologist or working in the media for Sky Sports or BBC or being a keynote speaker and doing that around the world. It's like because pretty much I'm just working on my psychology, making sure that I have clear goals, I'm focused on what I want to do, I'm, I'm accountable for my actions, I'm, I'm good in my analysis, I keep working out well, how to improve and keep moving and progressing and keep applying the same processes that I was doing in football through all these different industries that I've worked in. It's yeah. not rocket science. It's really not rocket science. I suppose, the, the, I don't know whether it's a difference or not, but 
as an athlete, and obviously as a former athlete now for me, but as an athlete, you just have this complete focus and dedication and clarity of what you want to achieve. And because you're doing that all day long, pretty much every single day, it just becomes so ingrained for me anyway in, in across all areas of my life. So whenever I want to go and do something else, I just kind of apply the same effort to that as what I was doing with football. Now, the skill isn't always there. So for instance, whenever I first had my radio show on the BBC, I'm standing up to present my first ever show on the, on the BBC. And I was as nervous as I was running out of Villa Park, even though it was, you know, just like my first ever show it was only a 30 minute show that I was presenting, but I didn't have the skill set to be able to present. But after three years of doing it, suddenly you build up all the skills and the tools and the strategies that you suddenly become way better. Same with the first time I stood up on stage. My first gig was for Aviva, front of 150 people delivering a keynote on leadership. I talk about how bad I was looking back at this because I used to record and still do record every single event that I've ever spoken at. And again, I don't do it for my own kind of you know glory to show people. I do it so I can improve and for my own analysis. I stammered through it. I stuttered. These little rosy red cheeks were going bright red. And it was just like, it was terrible. But of course, 10, 11 years later, whenever like one of the last ones I did was for Microsoft, and I'm delivering around the same subjects of mental performance and psychology and league performance and all these different areas. And the level of how I say it now is so different because I've had 10 years of practicing. And it's like a game. You're never going to have the perfect game and I'm never going to have the perfect speech. But as long as I'm always trying to improve what I do, then there's going to be a natural progression over my lifetime. Yeah, I love that, the, the idea of that continual progression, looking for the what's going to make you better next time. And, and I guess just as we finish off, I guess that's my biggest belief in, in what it is that I do with this podcast and with what I do in coaching is that there's always going to be that next that next level that you can reach and it goes back to the growth mindset sort of idea um and i've got this little saying that i use it's small incremental signs of development so i had this discussion not so long ago and it's quite ironic that you're on the podcast that you talk about success success on your podcast i had a conversation with um, a guy called richard wasson recently about he's got a book club called the, the book the success book club and we discussed what success means to us and i didn't have a definition because i haven't thought about it enough and that's my, my honest answer um, but I do have my small incremental science development. So I look for things that will always improve me or push me to the next level. And when I told him this, he kind of looked at me and he thought, he said to me, he says, so if you decide that you're going to be a better coach in terms of your technical aspect and you do that and you improve that, do you then go to your tactical or do you just purely stay in technical? And I went, um, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. <laughs> it just shook me right there because I was just so focused on that one part potentially that one part and not thinking about whatever else there is to make up on it. So I appreciate you, you giving up your time. I want to get that in there. Cause I think it's a really good way of ending that whole little discussion. Well, I, I just, I would throw my, my definition is uh, because whenever, since I stopped playing 11 years ago, now I've been working with, uh, he was actually our sports psychologist a guy called Gavin Drake. So he, I didn't realize the one day a week he was in working with us in our city um, he also had a you know, corporate training business that he was traveling around the world delivering mental performance programs to. So I've been working with him for the last 11 years. So I just love the way he does stuff and the benefits that the, that the clients and individuals seem to get for it. And the definition that he uses, Gavin uses, and that Mindspan uses 
success is traveling the continuous journey towards worthwhile goals. And that's the best definition I've ever come across. And it's really the two kind of key words in that whole sentence. And it's the continuous side. It's a bit like the kind of the Alex Ferguson, my United team of they'd win one league and it's like, how do we win the next one? How do we win the next one? So is that continuous? Because you don't just get the one point in your life of whatever you wanted to achieve and go, right, that's it. Done. We're done. Let's all go home. It's like, what else would you like to do? And then the other key word is worthwhile. Because whenever I was playing, the only thing I ever wanted to achieve and wanted to be successful with is in football. That was it. Sinead, like 32, I'm done from football. And suddenly I've got my life now going forward. So what's worthwhile for me now has nothing to do with football. <laughs> it's all completely to do with my family, my health, my finances, my traveling, you know. But I've decided what that is and I'm still working towards that. So that's the interesting part of, of how we all have potentially different versions of success. Yeah, it's an interesting video, and I, I might actually throw a podcast on that topic very soon as well because it's got it definitely got me thinking when I had that conversation with Richard and, and now with yourself. Um, so listen, only last thing for me to say is I really appreciate you giving your time. I know how busy you are, and I know we've been we've been contacting the last few weeks to try and get a date in. So thank you so much. Um, and if anybody's listening and would like to catch out your podcast, is it available across all platforms? I can get. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So if you want to go on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or or anything really that you that you um get your podcast from, then it's called the Psychology of Success. And yeah, have a listen once you've listened to Gary's one, then or Gary's how many podcasts have you got there? You're starting right doing me here. Oh dear. That, this this will probably be the forty-fifth episode. So yeah. <laughs> uh, that's slightly less than forty-five, but <laughs> Uh, yeah, if, if you've got time, then, then definitely check it out. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much.